0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you left wanting more at the end of each episode of this show? Are these short sessions getting you fired up to try new skills for yourself and share the journey with others who are working through the same challenges? Well, the good news is that this podcast is only the beginning. The real action and learning is happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord channel, where you can connect with the whole community to dive deeper into the topics on the show, explore solutions, and share your journey and blooper reel with an active group that can't wait to hear from you. You can get your questions answered and share knowledge and wisdom of your own on a safe platform that, unlike the social media giants, won't steal your personal data to advertise to you in creepy ways. Ditch Facebook and join us where the real skill builders are. Just find the link to the Discord chat on the homepage at RegenerativeSkills.com. Hey everybody and welcome back. So I've been watching an interesting and important discussion play out for a number of years now with the environmental movement and the ecological farming community. It appears that on one hand, we have a group that is convinced by the data that farming to feed a population which is growing exponentially through traditional land-based means is doomed to be an ecological detriment. Our current system should instead be replaced with high tech solutions, such as vertical farms and laboratory processes, to create the nutrition that this population needs. And as a result, we could return much of the farmland to rewilding efforts to recover the natural environments and biodiversity that we've lost, in no small part due to modern agriculture. Now, on the other side, we have people who are convinced by the data, often the same data, that we need to return to a deeper and more compassionate relationship with the earth, and one that allows us to produce a yield without compromising the ability of all other life forms to exist and thrive. And this way we can both feed the population and restore our role as environmental stewards. Rather than returning many farms to rewild, we could incorporate habitat and biodiversity into our production methods and foster the recovery of wild species in a way that enhances the resilience of our production methods. Instead of isolating human activity from a pristine concept of the natural world and permitting destructive actions in the remaining space, we could consider all of our necessary functions within a globally connected landscape for their potential to enhance all forms of life, not just our own. Now these two contrasting worldviews recently came to a head during a debate between Alan Savory and George Mambio. Alan represented the side of holistic management, taking into account the infinite complexity of the natural world to create management frameworks to operate with this nuance in a way that respects all the cycles of life-affirming principles of our world. George has been an outspoken critic of this position, especially in how it relates to the management of livestock in farming, arguing that there is no potential for beneficial ecological outcomes in livestock farming, and that in order to combat the climate crisis and mass biodiversity loss, High-efficiency farming must be leveraged, along with technology such as precision fermentation, to produce plant-based protein alternatives to meat. Now, I've linked to the video recording of the debate in the show notes for this episode on the website in order to let you make up your own mind about which side you support. I also want to express that I don't consider these two positions, certainly not in their rigidity, as the only positions in the broader discussion. At the same time, I know that anyone who has listened to more than a few episodes of this show will know which direction I lean personally. Now this brings me to today's interview, in which I'll be speaking with Chris Smage. Chris is a university-based social scientist turned farmer. He has co-run a small farm and market garden for the last 20 years. Along with farming, he is a dedicated voice for regenerative and locally-based food systems, He's the author of A Small-Farm Future, which articulates his vision and the details of a society built around local economies and food systems, and his most recent title, Saying No to a Farm-Free Future, which directly confronts the popular arguments in favor of manufactured food and removing food production from the land. Now, in our conversation, we start by identifying the sources and advocacy of industrially produced food and farm alternatives. We break down the manipulation of data and reductionist thinking that results in conclusions that technological fixes are our only option. Chris also paints a picture of his ideas of a brighter alternative to these conclusions and what is possible in a more locally based and decentralized configuration of our sources of sustenance. We also dig into the active role that all of us can play in creating this alternative future, And accelerate a transformation in the role of farming as well as supply and production of food to one that serves the broader community of life that we're all connected to. This is one of my favorite current subjects of exploration as it is connected to so many aspects of how we live, organize ourselves, co-create culture and community, and manifest our future. I really hope to explore aspects of this with many more people and perspectives in the coming months and so please, if there are people that you would like to hear me interview about these topics, or if you would like to add or to challenge any of the points in the upcoming discussion, I really encourage you to reach out on our Discord community or to me directly at info at So with that out of the way, I will hand things over now to Chris Smage. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I think the topic that we're going to be exploring is extremely timely. But before we jump into the specifics of that, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what your impetus for writing this book was?
1: Right. Um, yeah. Hi. Thanks for um, thanks for inviting me on. Um, I mean, my background is I'm a, a social scientist by training. I sort of spent the first part of my career in in sort of universities and research institutes doing kind of different aspects kind of sociology anthropology social policy Um, but then sort of in my 30s kind of got drawn into um, uh, you know thinking about uh, ecological threats climate change energy futures and so on thinking that the food and farming systems were sort of pretty key to that, and um, ended up with my wife um, starting a small farm, market garden um, where I am here in in Somerset, Southwest England. Um, so I was a you know grower for quite a few years, and but more recently have kind of got drawn back into the you know the more sort of analytical kind of right, you know, trying to figure out how we can sort of make agrarian localism regenerative ag and you know that whole suite of ideas you know how can um you know we amplify that narrative and and, and sort of help it to address the, the poly crisis that we're currently in um so i wrote a book uh, uh, a couple of years back now a small farm future where i sort of laid out some of my ideas there um just published uh, this other recent book called um Saying no to a farm-free future, which um, is engaging with the kind of eco-modernist um, techno-fix narrative that um, you know we we can sort of move away from farming altogether and start producing foods um, in a you know kind of manufacturing using so-called precision fermentation techniques and you know making more room for for nature and so on. So you know, I think there are some problems with that narrative um and um I you know George Mombio is a sort of key figure there whose who's book Regenesis has you know popularized that I kind of I've interacted with George um over the years quite positively for the most part but uh, not so positively around his enthusiasm for this um you know, for for, for um, you know manufactured food and his, some of his critiques of farming. I mean, you know, I share a lot of his critique of mainstream farming, but I kind of think he's sort of gone down a, 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 a you know a sort of some questionable routes with his recent analysis. So, kind of arising out of that, I started writing some some critiques and 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 you know making the case for agrarian localism as an alternative and that that sort of became the 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 new book um that has just been published
0: yeah and like you said there There is a lot of reason to look into the critiques around farming because it's not without its own blame. It has had a devastating effect on the ecology in most parts of the world and contributed a lot to things like desertification, pollution of waterways and on and on. And so Mm. there is a real reason to analyze exactly how we are managing our agricultural spaces However, the conclusions that are brought to that are where you differ from these techno-modernists, as you say. Can you maybe outline some of the, the critiques that are worth giving credence to before we break into what some possible fixes could be?
1: Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I agree. You know, I I think one aspect of farming is um you, you kind of have to connect it to the to the wider society and economy. And I think you know, one of the things that's going on here is that. We've sort of got into this blame game where we're looking for culprits for the, um, you know, for the crises and the, um, you know, the, the impasse that we're in. And it's, you know, you know, farmers basically have been asked to um, produce a, a, as as much uh, food and, and agricultural commodities as they possibly can, as cheaply as they possibly can, whilst, you know, while staying afloat in the modern marketplace Um And, you know, that has had catastrophic consequences, Um, you know, I would say largely in two ways. One, in terms of overproduction, um, you know, there's just this huge impetus to produce more and more uh, cheap global commodity crops as as cheaply as possible. And every every part of the world is basically incentivized to, uh, you know produce uh you know on the basis of comparative advantage you know to produce the, the you know the one or the handful of agricultural products um it's suited to producing and to kind of flood that into the into global commodity markets and you know that has been disastrous in uh, you know at, at, all, at all sorts of levels um socially economically politically ecologically uh, the other aspect of it is kind of um getting labor out of farming. I mean, you know, it's this kind of odd dynamic where every almost every other sector we say, great, we've created more jobs in this sector. Whereas farming, it's like, great, we've got, you know, we've 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 saved labor, we've got, you know, we've we've destroyed jobs in this sector. And um, and the way we've destroyed jobs, uh, well, yeah, various ways, but you know, a, a big part of it has been agrochemicals. Um fertilizers pesticides herbicides um and that they have had a disastrous impact um uh you know so if you put the sort of overproduction and the 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 labor cutting by substituting essentially ecocidal um chemicals and you know these are in 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 a sense these are all um derivatives or they're all derived from the fossil fuel industry you know which um basically makes cheap energy and 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 cheap petrochemicals available you know we've that that's a large part of of the impasse we've got in so it's uh so you know i I think i agree with you it's it's right and proper to critique that um you know that that whole trajectory of farming the problem is if you kind of point the finger at farmers specifically rather than us owning it as societies as a whole, you know, we have, you know, we have pushed farmers collectively as um, modern societies down that route. And we have to collectively take responsibility for that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of farm free narrative is that okay. Well, you know, farming didn't work out too well, um, you know, for all the reasons we, we've just been discussing, uh, let's do something different like the the main you know I think the sort of narrative drive of of the Regenesis book and of this kind of eco-modernist food narrative replanet and so on is basically you know let's take um, food production out of nature off the farm um, into factories um, you know one of the main ways that um, that, uh, you know, the, the, the main suggestion for doing that is um, using uh, bacteria to produce high protein. You know, you basically produce a high protein slurry of dead microbial matter that you then kind of filter and process. And, you know, it becomes this kind of high protein, um, very purified food. I think there's a whole bunch of problems with that. But the main problem that, um, you know, the main technical problem that I talk about in my book is the energetic cost. Um, You know, you basically farming ultimately uses sunlight. um, uh, And, you know, one of the issues with sunlight is that it's diffuse. So farming has to be diffuse. And so, you know, we get into that debate about farming land take but you know the sun solar energy is basically you know carbon free and and um and free and economically free if we're going to produce uh, food um through this sort of manufactured techniques we have to use generated electricity if we want to claim that it's um you know low carbon and part of uh you know an ecological solution we can't use fossil fuel um uh, you know fossil derived electricity we have to use clean um you know basically pv or wind or arguably nuclear energy Uh, already we're having to um decarbonize the energy economy and use those um forms of energy to do all the other things we we might want to do um and um you know the the process um, you know replacing um free sunlight with generated electricity seems kind of crazy to me in as much as you know we, we we already can't actually you know we're not really decarbonizing the energy economy as it is let alone um you know doing without sunlight and trying to produce all our all our food that way and you know it is much more energetically um lower cost to produce uh food using sunlight than um um, you know that than um, using this kind of route of um, you know generated electricity via microbes, and I kind of go, it, you know, there's not it's uh, there's not a lot of discussion at this point, and I, I've had to kind of unpick it quite a bit in the book because you know, may, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of kind of corporate boosterism around these new food technologies, and you know, and talk about how it's more efficient. You know, which and we can debate whether it's more or less efficient, but it's, you know, it's high cost in terms of the cost of of the generated electricity. And I think that's an important point for people to understand. You know, it's not, um, you know, it's a very, very costly process, um, you know, in terms of supplying the energy to it and, and, you know, a whole bunch of other reasons as well. But that's, yeah, that's kind of a quick summary.
0: Yeah. And where do you see the most prominent voices that advocate for these as solutions coming from? Because I know you mentioned George Mombia there, and he's become sort of a poster child for this way of looking at replacing conventional agriculture or at least traditional agriculture done out in the fields, mostly using natural resources to produce consumables. Into the technological fixes like you outlined there, but there are other sources that are advocating for this. Where do you see them coming
1: from? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I I I feel like it's a little bit of an unholy alliance between um, environmentalists who quite rightly care about nature and want to minimize um, human impacts on um, you know on on on. on wider ecologies, you know, we, we seems that we're in a potentially a kind of sixth mass extinction event caused by, by humans. So, you know, you've got to take seriously the impact that we're having on nature, which is not only driven by farming, but farming, you know, certainly worldwide is a, you know, is, is, is a primary cause of, um, of uh, biodiversity loss and all the rest of it. So there's that kind of um, environmentalist voice. But I think, um, you know, there's also um, a corporate voice and you get into this whole debate about, oh, well, you know, the case for farming or for livestock is driven by, um, you know, corporations and industry, which, you know, it is. But farming in many ways has been less corporatized than just about, you know, every other sector of the economy. Um, But, you know, certainly there are people like Bill Gates who quite openly talk about the fact that they've invested in uh, low carbon um, uh, uh, energy industries and in, you know, so-called alternative meats or, you know, sort of new manufactured proteins as a way of making money. So I think, you know, there's there's definitely a corporate interest in it, a lot of kind of Silicon Valley money, you know. and I think an interest in um you know essentially getting the consumer what you, you know <laughs> where corporations always want them to be, which is which is non-autonomous, you know, if you can't produce food for yourself, if you're living in a city, if you're dependent um on, you know, buying uh, food from a sort of high-tech industrial supply chain, you know, that makes you completely vulnerable to um you know to the sort of corporate um value scouring. So I think it's a little bit of an unholy alliance between environmentalists who, for all sorts of good reasons, want to lower the impact of farming, and this sort of corporate agenda. And those are, you know, one reason for me writing the book was I think, um, you know, that the sort of the radical environmental aspect of it pulls people into this narrative which um you know which has much more questionable or cynical motives you know on on the grounds of you know helping the poor or you know helping nature um uh, uh but you know that's i you know i don't think that ultimately um you know i don't think it will actually deliver those those touted benefits that the you know that the environmentalists or the you know the 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 sort of more radical political arguments in favor of it uh, want and and actually it's very much more of a of a kind of corporate control um, you know kind of value scouring narrative um, and you know and that's sort of what I want to draw attention to really.
0: Yeah, I think that last point that you made there especially sums it up there is that there is a lot of money being poured into this sector and it seems to be the final loop that can be closed in the corporate and energy takeover of possibly the oldest industry that humans have ever been a part of, right? Or at least the, you know, since the agricultural okay. revolution, at least the way that we look at agriculture since the last 10, 15,000 years of cultivating fields and such. I mean, um, and and because of that money there's going to be a lot of talk around it. There's going to be investment opportunities and these technologies are going to start to evolve into new things um, as those resources are poured into them. Do you see any possible positive effects coming from this, I guess, increase in technological resources being put into farming?
1: I mean, I, not not really in terms of that style of investment. I mean, I think, you know, we do need to be thinking a lot more and investing um, uh, I mean, I think uh, not necessarily inve- investing venture capital. Um, I mean, one point I'd like to make here is that I think that the sort of the, the whole manufactured food idea, the microbial protein idea is not really going to work out, um, you know, sort of in terms of um, energy costs or capital costs. But one of the problems is the extent to which it will try and draw public money into it on the basis of this kind of environmental crisis narrative. So, you know, a great book by uh, Glenn Davis Stone called The Agricultural Dilemma, where he makes this point that so many of our, of our agricultural technologies over the last hundred plus years have kind of been about... Um, getting people off the land you know getting ordinary people off the land sort of stopping local communities um from having food sovereignty and taking care of their own food production and creating kind of big industrial technologies around agriculture which essentially are a way of harvesting public money you know harvesting taxation on the grounds that uh, you know we need you know we need governments to kind of um seed invest in this technology you know we um so there's kind of a a resource suck from public into private money if it was just a case of you know big private corporations spending you know spending their own money playing around with these technologies which which in fact they have been playing around with for quite a number of years and you know they haven't it hasn't really gone anywhere i think because of the the energetic difficulties i was mentioning you know where it has gone is kind of um high value, low volume products like, um, you know, things like the sort of fake blood that is used in, in vegan burgers. You know, the actual vegan burger is a farm product. You know, it comes from soy or, you know, similar, similar sorts of things where the added corporate value is, is in the, you know, the little bit of fake blood or the little bit of, you know, sort of dressing on it, as it were. So that's where the technology has gone, you know, historically. The, the new idea is, hey, you know, we can actually produce the, the bulk commodity here, Uh, but I'm not sure they can. So I think, you know, for sure, we need to be investing our human ingenuity and our sort of pooled resources into rethinking farming. But I think that, you know, I guess my argument is that has to come from the ground up. You know, for sure, we need... um technological and, and science know-how, but it has to be addressed um, to sort of how we solve um, our our sort of uh, day-to-day food issues, um, you know, at the grassroots level, not this kind of top-down, one-size-fits-all, global, high-tech solutionism that alienates people from, you know, ac- access to whole foods locally, um, you know, in, in their own communities.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the more powerful points that you've made uh, up until this point is that the trajectory of going in that direction is a large part of why farming has become such a detrimental industry around the world anyway, and that to continue down that path is not going to take us in the direction that we would like to go if we are concerned about the environment and the economy of rural areas. There's so many things that you brought up there that we can pick apart individually and If you'll allow me, I'm going to play devil's advocate for some of these to understand. Well, I'm probably not the best person to do this because anyone who's listened to this show knows that we see quite eye to eye on this subject. However, let's give it a shot. So one of the things that you mentioned is that uh, if you're budgeting for the energy That you're really losing out by transforming it in a technological way, and then repurposing it into mechanical and technological ways of producing something that could be run directly off of sunlight out in the field. Now, someone in the the technological sphere would probably say, "Well, look, these are new uh, these are new technologies, right? They are in their infancy. They will improve over time, and as we get better at Let's say, transferring solar energy via solar panels, or maybe even start to harvest things like uh, like tidal waves and, and other forms of these, you know, constant forms of free ecological energy, then it'll start to come out. It'll start to, to balance out in the sheets, and then we may even become more efficient over time. Do you see that as a possibility?
1: I mean, well, I think there's I think there are some hard limits to that. Um, I mean, you know, one issue we have to bear in mind here is that time isn't really on our side. You know, we need to decarbonize the the energy economy over the next few decades. Otherwise, all bets are off about, you know, the the way the world is going to go. We're not actually decarbonizing it at the moment. I mean, last year, the world used more fossil energy than ever before. So you know, as I was saying earlier, the idea of hey, you know, let's actually add to our um, um our, our our energetic needs by replacing um free free sunlight with generated energy doesn't seem like a good bet at the moment. But yes, it may get um you know it may get um, more efficient. Um, I mean, again, we have to connect this to the wider economy because what you know for sure, if you look at the energy economy in recent years. There's way more low carbon energy in the energy mix now than there was, um, you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But all it's done really is added to our total energy use. You know, it hasn't really substituted for for for, for any, uh, you know, for, for existing fossil energy. Uh, you know, maybe that will start to, to happen, but it's kind of too little, too late really at this stage. So when people say, well, you know, we can find new ways of harvesting energy, um, I mean, yeah, probably in new and better ways, but, you know, there is a sort of more underlying, um, almost, you know, a, a sort of cultural or a sort of spiritual issue, you know, that the issue isn't really our efficiency or our ability to harvest energy. It's kind of how we're organizing ourselves socially and economically, but even leaving aside that kind of bigger social context, you know, there are some hard physical limits. Um, you know, there's a paper I cite in my book, which, um, I'm not very good at remembering figures off the top of my head but i think it's something like uh, around 18 or 19 um, kilowatt hours per, per kilo of protein is is a kind of hard biophysical limit to how much um uh, how much energy needs to produce microbial protein through through the hydrogen oxygenating route um so that's already a higher energy use than um you know we can produce you know the, the easiest ways of producing protein uh via um you know standard farming techniques by growing legumes say so so i mean yeah for sure uh, it it possibly will get a bit more efficient um but that is kind of missing where it connects to to the economy and 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 wider society and i think Uh, In any in any case, there are um, biophysical limits to it when you when you set it alongside farming because of the, you know, the free solar energy that farming is able to tap.
0: All right, so let's go into one now that you also covered quite a bit in your previous book, A Small Farm Future. This is one that has been a narrative in many of our cultures for perhaps hundreds of years now, which is by reducing the labor on farms we are freeing up people in rural areas from the drudgery of the lifestyle of working on a farm and giving them opportunities to do something else with their time so by further mechanizing and reducing the labor that is required to produce things like protein and calories although let's not reduce food to such a small thing um, then this is actually helpful for the culture and for the people who would otherwise be shackled by working out in the
1: fields. Right. Well, I think the the little caveat you just made is quite an important one, actually, that, you know, let's not reduce food to calories or protein because that, you know, we've got this huge kind of global health crisis, really, which has resulted from, you know, the way that we've mechanized food has made whole foods, you know, fruit and vegetables and, and so on has made them basically unaffordable um to uh huge swathes of the population and you know people uh you know would otherwise be looking to have a, or you know would be able to produce a much greater diversity of diet so the way that we've um that we've mechanized people out of farming has actually been um catastrophic health-wise really but you know that i mean i think potentially um there is a grain of truth to that argument i mean i was you know i don't like to sort of um uh, overly extol the you know i don't want to create some kind of overly idyllic vision of what um farming small scale farming can be like equally though it's uh, you know it, it, the the history of that hasn't been this kind of people downing their, their hand tools as soon as, um, as soon as they got the opportunity to move to the city. It's been a process uh, very often, very largely of enclosure, you know, of people being forced to, um, you know, to some extent to um, being forced into global industrial agricultural production. I mean, the whole history of slavery, you know, sort of illustrates that um, um, in, 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 a, in a sort of tragic and catastrophic way um so you know it hasn't been um uh, you know a, a, an idyllic process of industrialization um never but i would agree to some extent that we've been through a, a, a historical period where a degree of industrialization and capitalization has generated economic growth that has enabled um you know some proportion of uh, of of the world's people to um, to enjoy more income and more opportunities. I mean you know I'm kind of a, you know I, I accept there's a grain of truth in that narrative, but you also have to look at the, the the darker side of that in terms of the kind of exploitation that exists in the in sort of global economic connections. But I guess my argument really is that we're coming to an end of that period in history when um, vast industrialization, generated huge rates of economic growth i mean we're already at a stage of economic precarity in in um you know in in the um big global megacities cities where processes of of um labor um rationalization in industry is pushing a lot of people into very precarious service sector type jobs and then you know we're looking at the bigger geopolitics now, as as energy um, and resources squeeze. You know, we're going to see, um, you know, the big global uh, powers. I mean, I talk about this a, a bit in my book. You know, we're already seeing sort of China, India, Russia, um, the USA, the EU, all kind of um, jockeying with each other over, um, you know, over access to resources. So in that situation, the idea that hey, let's let's um, you know get people out of the countryside, let's concentrate them in um, you know in in big mega cities, um, which are incredibly reliant on uh, energy, you know cheap um, energy, electricity basically, and you know the 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 existing um, unsustainable global energy economy. You know that argument. Um, I can see how you know if if we were having this discussion in in sort of 1890, you know, I I, I would I I think you would have a um, you know a, a better case to make. But we're having this discussion now. I think the argument to get people out of the countryside, concentrate them into cities, um, you know, it's not a good bet in terms of um, you know global geopolitics and global energy economics.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, how about the one about freeing up land for wildlife? If we concentrate our food production into factories and you know just make it a smaller footprint on the land itself, then we can rewild all, all of this former farmland that was dedicated to pastures or to row cropping, and we can start to heal the biodiversity loss that has been caused. As agriculture expands to meet the demand of a growing population,
1: right. Well, I think that's probably the best um, the best of your devil's advocate arguments. I mean, we definitely need to um, reduce our agricultural footprint and to make more room for nature. Um, there are questions about how we do that. You know, what's what's the best way of of trying to do that? Is it to invest? You know, our Uh, already very squeezed energy economy into this kind of untried new technology, which we claim will, you know, will be able to bring more people into the cities, Uh, even if that works, which I don't think it will, you know, how is that going to play out longer term? Are all the people that we've sort of removed from nature suddenly going to start caring about um you know you, you know the 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 wider ecology you know what's going on in the parts of the world where where their products are coming from that they're not that they don't see that they're not um involved in you know the the, the ecocidal nature of modern civilization is very much driven by um urbanization um industrialization you know is a further iteration of that actually although it might uh you know we might be able to lower our agricultural footprint a bit but is that really going to generate a a kind of ecological civilization long term i would argue probably not um but yeah we definitely need to reduce our our footprint but that goes back to what i was saying earlier you know how do we do that um one thing we need to, uh, you know, we 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 really need to focus on fossil fuels and and cut them out of our energy mix. If we do that, um, I think we're looking at lower energy, um, you know, lower energy ways of life. That will mean that we'll need to generate more of our resources locally. Uh, it'll mean that we can't just be profligately using, um, you know, producing food uh you know as cheaply as we can wherever wherever we can in the world we'll have we'll actually have to start caring for local landscapes It will mean probably eating less meat which you know i agree with um the uh the, the kind of um rewilding narrative that meat um you know it does have a bigger footprint um there's definitely a place for it in farming and and particularly in lower energy farming um but, you know, uh, not as a way of sort of adding value by growing, you know, huge amounts of cheap commodity crops and pouring them down the throats of animals. Um, so really it's about, uh, you know, I, I, think, um, I think the sort of premise of your question is right. You know, we do need to lower our ecological footprint, our, our ecological imp- impacts and our agricultural footprint. The question is how we do that. Um, uh, you know, I think the way we need to do it is a much more, Um, it's a much kind of harder in a way um, idea of, you know, really looking at how we are um, uh, operating as ecological protagonists within our landscapes, not a kind of techno fix that we pull down from on high. Um, um, But yeah, you know, we need to do it. We need to farm more ecologically for sure. Um, But I think, you know, the key thing there is, is, is um, to actually look at local, um, yeah, the, the 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 possibilities of local landscapes to produce food um, that people living in those landscapes need, not to produce as much agricultural commodities to sell into global markets as 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 possible. So you know, going back to that narrative of overproduction, I was talking about, it's like weaning ourselves off agricultural overproduction by reconnecting with local needs, not global market demands, essentially.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's dig a little deeper into that one specifically about meat, because this argument comes from both, you know, vegetarian and vegan advocates, as well as this technological uh, modernist farming narrative for the future, which is that, well, meat production just takes up so much space all around the world, and it is an extremely inefficient, like, you know, for size of land to output of protein equation for producing protein mostly right um and that Mm. it is also one of the biggest drivers for things like uh destruction of the rainforest as it expands to put pastures into areas that did not hold them previously and depending on how it's managed uh destruction of traditional grassland areas leading to desertification and such. And by replacing our protein production through these more efficient processes of, you know, like you're talking about um, precision fermentation of grain, soy and, and other grain products, it is a much more direct and efficient way of getting protein through direct production of plants over to a population that is of course growing. How do you see that fitting into both, uh, you know, the, the trajectory of going towards a more mechanized process and maybe some alternatives to it.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it's very complicated, <laughs> but <It is. laughs> uh, I guess my starting position, w- <laughs> my starting position would be to basically agree with the, um, with the vegan critique of existing agriculture that, uh, I, I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of existing meat production, uh, system is 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 kind of a horror show um but you know it it has arisen um really out of that overproduction dynamic which is you know either producing um you know the the, the sort of parts of the world that are that are pastoral and um are best at producing um you know grazing ruminants they are incentivized to produce as many of them as they possibly can Uh, excuse me as, as they possibly can other parts of the world are producing cheap um commodity uh, crops you know cereals and grain legumes and and then adding value by by pouring them down the throats of livestock you know um so yeah that 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 is not a good way to go um, what we need to do is figure out local um systems addressing local food needs uh in low energy ways you know not using a lot of fossil fossil fuel inputs if you do that you know if you look around the world pretty much every part of the world has figured out a low energy local um uh farming system um and livestock fit into that you know if you think about all the traditional farm animals basically what they do is uh tap and cycle nutrients within the farm system which are otherwise hard for people to to access directly um you know and typically you'll have like a rotation with uh you, you know you'll you'll have um fields in fallow that you will graze livestock in um uh you know you then will grow you'll 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 grow crops um and then and then sort of cycle back into fallow to 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 rest and and rotate and build the soil and livestock sort of fit into that rotation um, but not to the extent that you can eat meat at the levels that we've become accustomed to in, you know, rich parts of the world like the US or, or Western Europe. So yeah, for sure, we need to cut livestock. Um, or we need to cut uh, well, I mean, well, so we need to cut livestock. We we don't necessarily, it depends where you're we, you know, we need to cut our um easy recourse to cheap meat as part of a kind of modern consumerism. Um but it does get complicated because, um, you know, you can sort of say, oh, we should just rewild. Um, yeah, you, you know, it it very much depends on the local situation. Um, you know, there are wild grazing ruminants. You know, there are large parts of the world um, which have a kind of grassland ecosystem, which historically have been maintained by ruminants and sometimes by by domestic you know human grazed um, ruminants um, you get into all sorts of highly technical questions about methane about soil carbon sequestration about um, reforestation about albedo and so on and you know ultimately i kind of think you know we've gone a little bit too far down this route of trying to count carbon costs very minutely and say you know we should be reforesting, or we sh- we should be doing this or that. What we actually need to be doing is, um, you know, creating uh, renewable local food and farming systems, and um, you know, as people have done in the past. And, you know, I I kind of get a lot of pushback on this along the lines of, oh well, you know, there's eight billion people on the planet now, we we can't do that. But actually, human labour you know, going back to one of your earlier questions is hugely productive of food in low impact ways. You know, if that's what we choose to devote human labor to, you know, the the, the kind of modern um, industrial farming system is not necessarily more productive of food per acre. It's more productive of food um, per agricultural worker, you know, going back to your question about kind of getting labor out of agriculture Um, So, yeah, for sure, we need to rethink um, the um, uh, meat and um, the farming system. But livestock have their place in um, renewable farming systems. And particularly, I think, in, you know, not so much to feed the uh, consumers of rich urban um, places, but, you know, there are traditional pastoralist systems um, where people have figured out you know, very low impact, very biodiverse um, systems of herding ruminants. And one of my fears about this whole kind of manufactured food narrative is that it it can be used and is being used um, essentially to point the finger at traditional pastoralists who have very little political power and voice and tell them that they are agents of ecological destruction when in fact, they're not, if anything, the opposite, you know, the people who are agents of ecological destruction are rich people living in cities in, in the global north. Um, so for sure, we need to look at our food consumption and our meat consumption. And, you know, our, our tendency to be consumers drawing down on the food system, rather than sort of adding to Um, you know adding to local resilience and adding to local food systems Um, so it's complicated um, at at so many levels and I think you can't really generalize you know you can't really say um, meat is bad or you know livestock are, are bad globally they definitely are bad in all sorts of particular settings but that's where we need to have a more nuanced and localized debates about food and, and sort of reconfigure the food system to be sort of keyed into um, to local ecologies. Sorry, very long answer, but no, you
0: know, no, no, I, I, I completely so, agree. Yeah. It's, it's a good segue into a very recent and relevant event for what we're talking about. We're just a couple of weeks past the famous debate between George Mambia and Alan Savory. And it kind of ties into right. what a lot of people have concluded from this is that It's not that one side or the other is right or wrong, it's that they're coming from a different worldview that informs how they see these equations and what should be done about them. And, you know, George Mm -hmm. is often defending the side of what often gets called reductionist scientific conclusion or research in this way, in which you pick something whether relevant or arbitrary to optimize for let's say the reduction of greenhouse gases and then everything must conform into a model in which that is done. Or, you know, maybe there are a few multiples and let's say increase of biodiversity is one of those objectives and there may be a few others. However, the the other side of that is what Alan Savory is usually accredited to, which is looking at it from a holistic perspective, in which everything is relevant and the complexity of living systems must be taken into account and that there are nonlinear outcomes from managing things in this way. Is it inevitable that a view through this scientific method is going to bring you to the kinds of conclusions for technological fixes of farming? And is it just a matter of the worldview that you adopt? Or are there ways to marry the two for the types of kind of healthy rediscovery of land stewardship cultures that include food production, but also stewardship of other resources that can be derived from both scientific and holistic thinking?
1: Yeah, good question. I mean, I think we have to be very careful about the way we invoke science in all of this, um, uh, uh, because it ultimately, yeah, you, you know, it 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 depends on what question you ask. So I think you know the way you formulated that is 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 right. I mean, I think there's a real danger of sort of saying I've read the science, and the science tells us we should do this. And I, I mean, I do critique Monbiot in my book because I think you know you you can't a scientific study you know is only as good or is only sort of relevant within it, it, you know the parameters that it, that it, that it's kind of defined and you can and you have to define them quite tightly whereas what we're talking about is you know huge kind of ultimately philosophical questions you know how should we live you know and you you know you can't say the science says we should do this you know you yeah. can only say the science you know gives us you know it gives us this little bit of information that that's useful to feed into you know some some pretty kind of grounded decision making so yeah i think we you know we do need to put it into um in, in, into um a much more kind of holistic frameworks um and yeah it's it's hard to you know you you, you can't really um yeah i think there's a real danger of cherry picking basically you know you, you can you, you can cite an, an awful lot of scientific studies that you claim to sort of support your particular view. What you can't do is says is say, you know, the science says we should do agriculture like this, because that's not a scientific question that, you know, that you can formulate empirically. So, yeah, I do think we need I mean, and, and I think, you know, probably you're right that the the Mombio savoury debate um uh sort of exemplified that talking past of one another with with different frameworks I mean I you know I have my own views as to you know <laughs> who you know who said what and who was right about this or that or the other but it did exemplify that um you know that 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 sort of larger intellectual problem of of how we uh bring different kinds of knowledges to bear um And again, it sort of goes back to my point about poor pastoralist peoples is that it's very easy to invoke science as this um, kind of modernist rationalizing narrative that you people, you know, um, you know, you don't know what you're doing, you haven't got the data, you haven't got the numbers, um, what you're doing is wrong. and, And, you know, and that can then draw politics into it you know draw powerful political or economic actors to sort of move in and and you know certainly that's a narrative that we're seeing here in the uk there's a lot of um focus on upland livestock farming as being destructive uh, what what a lot of upland livestock farmers would say is are you joking you know my 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 few herds you know my 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 few head of of cattle compared to you know, the larger fossil fuel system. And what's actually happening here is a kind of rewilding narrative with, you know, with companies wanting to get carbon credits by planting trees on land that's, you know, that farmers have been cleared of. And, it, and then immediately it gets into this very oppositional, very politicized debate. So, yeah, I think we need to, um, you know, what I'm I'm certainly not arguing that we, you know, that we shouldn't look at science and data and evidence, but I think we need to do that in a, more nuanced um way in in a more um yeah exactly in a more holistic way than than occurred in that debate um and to some extent i think we need to um sort of get over some of our human hubris that these the science you know of this the way that we are implicated into wider ecologies are so fantastically complicated we're only just beginning you know we we're just scratching the surface of, of a lot of this. And so to kind of claim that actually we know that the best thing to do is, you know, whatever it might be to manufacture food in, you know, with microbial methods or, or you know, any other uh, type of technique, I think there's an element of hubris in that. And, you know, I suppose that's where I just go back to, you know, let's look at how we can produce food and the livelihoods that we need um locally using um low energy renewable methods inspired by but not um you know not not trying to replicate exactly older systems that we know have 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 worked in this type of ecology and you know and let's just keep um keep trying to learn and, and and um be exposed to the feedback which is another argument in favor of agrarian localism really you know if you buy a product in the shop you've got no idea where it came from and what impact it's had whereas the more that you're implicated in your own local food system the more that you can get um, information get feedback about the consequences of your farming so um, you know I think that's important.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's, it is very important. And I want to go back to something that you said there at the, the beginning of this explanation is that the scientific method is often as good as the controls that you put on a test, but also the questions that you are asking. You It's very easy to optimize for a singular thing, you know, and it seems to be that we have deferred all of our research to optimize for Lowering greenhouse gas emissions or producing as much food or optimizing for nutritional density is kind of the new fashionable one. And that Mm. I'm never hearing these studies come out of the central question of what is the healthiest food production system for the region in which a farm is located, right? If we were to optimize for that, what would be the conclusions that could come from the same method, the same, you know, verifiable uh, studies and, and, you know, the scientific method that we're used to. But the quality of the question has so much to do with the outcome of the things that we're trying to optimize for. And I think if we asked Mm. better questions, if we had a central narrative of the purpose of agriculture is not just the uh, final product or the yield that it comes, that, that is brought to market, but the culture that it cultivates, the relationship of the people who participate in it to the land that they are stewarding, the health and the vitality of the communities that participate in these activities, we would come to very different mm. conclusions, perhaps even with the same methodology.
1: Yeah. Yeah well I mean I think that cultural connection is absolutely vital and 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 also very hard to measure and this is one of the problems where all the stuff that you can't put a number to tends to be you know yeah whatever you know <laughs> kind of ruled out of um out yeah. of the equation and 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 often it's the you know it's the non tangibles and the qualitative stuff that ultimately is most important, but even at a sort of more tar- narrowly technical level, I mean, you know, one of the arguments about the the, the supposed efficiency of the manufactured food route is, um, you know, basically if you're if if you're energizing it with PV panels, the argument basically, you know, if you have a field full of PV panels year round, they are able to capture more of the incident sunlight than you know a food crop like soy Um, so so then you have this argument uh, okay so then we can um, you know produce more food per acre than the than the agricultural method that isn't necessarily entirely true because um, you know the soy is only in the in the soil for a part of the year, and you know you may be doing uh, you know you can produce other stuff. So immediately you start questioning the the parameters of these studies. Um, yeah. But also you know if the PV panels are capturing um, this um, this sunlight that the human crop isn't capturing then obviously, you know, that energy is not being captured um, by something else, which could be weeds, um, you know, in the field. The weeds might be feeding insects um, or, you know, other. So there's a whole kind of, um, uh, there's a whole ecological addendum to it, which you're not picking up in this, uh, as you, you know, as you rightly said, this kind of quite narrow framing around, um, you know, our plants or PV panels or, you know, our crop plants or PV panels are more efficient doing things. And, you know, and that's where it gets fantastically complicated and, you know, to the extent that I think we can't really answer these, you know, we can talk about um, life cycle analyses and all, all these sort of whizzy forms of of economic evaluation and so on, but we're always missing some aspect of that context. Um, and I think that can lead us to some very, a short-termist or 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 inappropriate conclusions um so you know both at that cultural level but even at the more sort of narrowly technical ecological or agronomic level we have to be super careful in saying that you know the science says that we should do this um and that's Absolutely. where we need to connect to i think yeah wider wider histories and wider knowledges really um for sure
0: Yeah, and out of necessity, anytime you do a study like that, you can't look at the whole picture and eliminate all variables. And so as a result, there's always going to be blind spots in whatever sort of accounting or analysis that you do. And I think this is how so many of the more holistic factors have been left out of this discussion because you just can't do any single study or even a series of studies that takes into account all of the complexity and the interconnected relationships when you're looking at ecology and you know you've been alluding to so many different important parts of this throughout this discussion but perhaps you can summarize what your counter vision is for this technological removal of farming in the traditional sense What is a a different possibility of how perhaps farming could be central to the solutions that many of these technological fixes are trying to solve for?
1: Well, you know, I suppose I've been alluding to agrarian localism and and kind of food sovereignty. Um, Ultimately, I'm I'm here wearing my Land Workers Alliance T-shirt, which is um, um, an organization in the UK which is associated with the global peasant organization la via campesina so it's very much you know food sovereignty is very much about empowering uh local people local communities moving away from this kind of producer and versus consumer framing to to growers and eaters you know a- actually being part of of you know food using food uh, communities um you know so that that's that that's that's basically it i mean i a book that I would recommend as a as, as a sort of alternative to the Regenesis type um, narrative is uh, Dave Goulson. Um, his book uh, oh, it's uh, the name of it eludes me. I think it's Silent Planet or Silent Earth. He's um, a a kind of insect insect expert, and you know he's done. Um, really powerful analyses of the way that agrochemicals among many other things it's not only agriculture but certainly agriculture is critical in you know what people are calling the insect apocalypse but his argument is not therefore we should stop farming and um, you know produce um, uh, you know manufactured food or get into this land-sparing narrative which he and I correctly, I think, argues is problematic for all the reasons that we've we've been touching on. You know, he talks about um, more home gardening, more allotments, more small scale local production. And you, know, and, and, you know, he cites some interesting research, which is that, you know, when people produce food for themselves, um, you know, in a sort of amateur, non-commercial way, they don't tend to pour lots of agrochemicals um on on um on the food that they're producing for themselves you know not like i wonder why that is you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't <right. laughs> think that doesn't you <laughs> know so um and that and that has huge bio, biodiversity benefits so you know my argument i mean i know we're a long way down this this kind of urbanized industrialized route. so you know the counter argument to people like me is uh you know you're you're kidding yourself if you think that we're going to kind of de-urbanize de-industrialize i mean my argument to that is i think it's going to be forced on us anyway by energy realities so the suit you know the sooner that we embrace it and 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 try and deal with it and do something about it the less horrific and chaotic it's going to be But, you know, the answer is to produce the food that we need, you know, not more food than we need, just the food that, you know, that we need, Um, not, you know, not this dynamic of overproduction to try and make um, enough money out of farming, to grow food that we need for ourselves as individuals, as households, as communities, and to, you know, and that that will inevitably produce um, food that's more ecologically appropriate um, locally that's more diverse than the handful of commodity crops um, you know that global farming systems are producing and that is going to um, almost certainly produce more biodiversity, you know less less agrochemicals, um, more, more diversity in local food landscapes um, uh, and so on and so on and so on. I mean, you know, that's sort of what we've tried to do in our own um, sort of haphazard and humble way on our own farm. You know, there's there's more people living on my farm than there were, in, uh, you know, when we first came here. There's, there's more biodiversity and there's more food production. You know, it's not a kind of a zero-sum game. So, you know, I think that's the route that we need to go down.
0: I love it. And how do you see the role of, let's say, non-farmers in promoting this way of returning to some of the traditional ways of farming and the culture that is built around it? What can people at home do to support this?
1: Right. I mean, I suppose one answer to that is to sort of break down the whole distinction between farmer and non-farmer, you know, just to take an interest in the food that you eat. So, you know, if you live in a city, you know, if you live on a, in a high rise block, Maybe you can grow some herbs on a windowsill. Maybe that's all you can do. You know, I, I mean, I like to say that makes you a farmer. You know, <laughs> I sort of think we yeah, need to sure. get beyond this, this, you know, the sort of narrative of a farmer being somebody in a huge tractor. In you know, so I think what people can do is within the limitations of you know where they're at and the and the lives that that you know that that they're leading, um, take an interest in the food um, that you're eating. Um, you know it, it can also be a political interest you know not just producing um, uh, food for yourself but asking questions about well you know how does my neighborhood and community get food are there are there better ways of doing that are there more local ways are there ways that um, maybe reward local farmers more um, you know so just starting that kind of conversation rather than assuming that there is this kind of one size fits all global tech solutionism that's going to kind of buy us out of the problems of the food system but i think ultimately that is going to lead into some hard um questions and some hard politics around you know to some extent around urbanism versus ruralism you know can we sustain the level of urbanization um in in the world as it is today i think not And that then leads into questions over access to land, you know, um, sort of breaking down large scale land ownership, um, you know, creating more diverse, smaller scale local farms. And, you know, obviously that then, um, you know, we get into the question that a lot of politics is designed to sort of try and um, uh, evade, which is who owns the land and, and, you know, how can ordinary people access the land you know not just for recreation you know we've got that kind of right to roam sort of debate which is important and 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 good in its own right but it's you know we need to have a kind of right to farm you know right to garden debate um and, and and that's important too
0: i love that i haven't heard that phrase that way i completely agree and where would you direct listeners to inform themselves more about these topics so that they can participate in the conversation in a more uh you know educated way and and advocate for this in different spheres
1: well i suppose i'm going to have to plug myself uh, in response to that question <laughs> so, absolutely so um <laughs> so my my website chrismage.com i have a blog that i've been doing for, for for a long time and and you know links to my books and there's quite a lively um bunch of of commenters and uh you know interesting debates there um but yeah, I would. I'd, I'd you know beyond that, I'd encourage um, people to sort of get involved in um, food sovereignty debates. Um, you know, local food um, uh, debates. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of lot of local food network. You know, here here in Froome we have a, a, a group, the Froome Food Network, which is just you know pushing that conversation forward about you know how we're you know how we're doing food locally. lot of issues about food access you know helping um uh, people in poverty accessing healthy food um is is a key thing and then that kind of you know starts those conversations about you know access to food and um you know the, the sort of cost of living crisis and the way that you know the existing food system is just kind of extracting value from us the whole time um and you know there's good resources that um the, I mean, Lavia Via Campesina um, does a lot of good stuff. Um, you know, there's groups like the ETC group um, that, that tracks, um, you know, the corporate malfeasance in the, in the food system. So, you know, just trying to sort of get informed locally and non-locally about the the, the the bigger politics around this, I think, is, you know, one of the most important things that people can do
0: brilliant. Yeah, I know La Via Campesina has a lot of local affiliate chapters in many countries, most countries around the world at this point and they're a great resource for more information, but also tapping into the community of other people around you who are passionate about this and actively participating in it. Um yeah, there there are so many great resources out there. I'll make sure to link to those in the show notes for this episode. Chris, it's Well, first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to put together both of your books, the one in the beginning, A Small Farm Future, about basically preempting the arguments that are later made in the more recent one of saying no uh, to a farm-free future and contributing to this debate that is so relevant right now. Uh, Thank you for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks.
0: Thanks once again to Chris. I'll make sure to link to all of the resources that he's talked about and how you can get in touch with him in the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.